And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is hump day. That means uh, we're already halfway through the week, believe it or not. Uh, get through today and we're, we're back back on the back hill slide of this whole week. So uh, first week of May getting wrapped up here. Of course, uh, yesterday, the 4th, we celebrated May the 4th be with you with uh, Star Wars. Today, Cinco de Mayo, which really is kind of a made-up holiday, by the way. I mean, it's not Mexican independence. It's, you know... That's it's not really that. It was the Battle of Pueblo. Yeah, but but they had so many. They had so many, and, and it's more around. You know, it wasn't their defeat over the French, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's but it's a good day that we all go out and we celebrate, right? Uh, drink margaritas and eat Mexican food. So <laughs> we just need a good holiday before Memorial Day. It's, right? it's so. National Tex-Mex Day. It is National Tex-Mex Day. Yeah. Absolutely. And and uh, if you go online to Chipotle, uh, if you're one of the lucky 250,000 people, you can get a coupon for a free burrito. Today. Really? Yes. Just go to Chipotle.com, right? There you, there you go. Little tidbit you find out on this morning's show. Public service <laughs> Public announcement. Service. We have more of those coming your way, too. <laughs> so a couple of things happened uh, yesterday. Yesterday morning, uh, so yesterday morning here on the show, we were talking about, you know, our money flow signal was very close to triggering positive. And uh, that did not happen yesterday. Um, out of the gate yesterday morning, markets were kind of set to kind of open a little bit weaker. But, you know, we'd had a big kind of a big rally day the day before. So a little bit of weakness was kind of expected. No big deal. Um, we were kind of still expecting this money flow uh, signal to turn positive. That didn't happen yesterday because, well, we had this sell off yesterday. Now, two things happened with the sell off yesterday. It was very interesting. First of all, the sell off was triggered really early in the day. There was a lot of people running around going, what, what, what happened? Why are we getting this big sell off? Market was down fairly sharply yesterday at the open. And uh, that selling accelerated shortly after Janet Yellen came out and said, well, well, we might need to raise interest rates <laughs> uh, you know, along with taxes. Of course, uh, the market didn't like that idea of tightening monetary policy at this stage of the game. Um, and the market sold off pretty aggressively. And apparently, Janet Yellen got a phone call from somebody because later in the afternoon, she came out and said, oh, I was just kidding. Not really. Not really talking about hiking rates. Just I was just kind of thinking out loud, right? And so the markets did recover a little bit. Now the good news is is that we did violate the 20-day moving average yesterday at the open. We did recover that by the end of the day. So there's kind of after she came out, revised her statement, and said, "Well, I'm just kidding. Not you know, I was just kind of joking. Just wanted to float a trial balloon out there, see what y'all kind of thought about hiking rates here. Apparently y'all didn't like it, so I'm going to retract my statement. Markets rallied back above that 20-day moving average at the close. So, so the good news is we held real short-term support. And again, as we've been kind of talking about here over the last week or so, is that we continue to really just kind of remain in this consolidation range that really continues to, to not go much of anywhere. And, and we've just been kind of stuck here over the course of the last couple of weeks. And, and again, a little bit of a frustrating trade, no less. But as we continue to kind of work through this money flow sell signal, that continues to apply downward pressure 
pressure on prices. And again, notably, money flows have begun to weaken here. So again, we've kind of got this confluence of the fact that we had this very sharp run up in April. We've been consolidate. Uh, sorry, in March, uh, we consolidated a lot of that gain in late April and, of course, now this past week. So again, markets really haven't gone much of anywhere over the last couple of weeks and money flows are beginning to weaken here. And this all is conjunction, of course. We've had a MACD sell signal as well. That's a moving average convergence divergence indicator. And all that says is that moving averages are, are becoming more more converged at this point <laughs> as, as prices really don't go anywhere. So again, moving averages are kind of catching up with prices. So that's good news, uh, you know, as, as is always the case in the financial markets, Corrections can actually happen in two forms. You don't actually have to have a sell-off in stock prices to correct an overextension of the market. Markets can just not go anywhere and allow the moving averages to catch up. And that happens sometimes, and that's kind of what we're seeing currently at this point. So again, this has really just been kind of a frustrating trade here for investors over the last couple of weeks, not really getting a lot of momentum. Interestingly enough, companies really aren't being rewarded for actually beating earnings. And, and estimates that have been coming out. We've had a record number of companies, not surprising, uh, beat estimates and earnings this quarter. Everybody's very excited. Earnings estimates are being ratcheted up sharply through the end of this year. Just in the last month, estimates for the end of 2021 have, have shot up by almost $20 a share. So again, analysts are getting very optimistic about what earnings are gonna look like through the end of this year, but companies really aren't being rewarded for that because of concerns over inflation. And the other issue is, is that a big bunch of the earnings beats have come from better margins. In fact, a large chunk of the earnings expectations uh, and the earnings beats have been a function of increased net margins rather than actual sales growth and earnings growth. So that is something that inflation will solve very quickly as we start seeing very sharp rises in inflation and an inability of companies to pass that inflation on to consumers, that's gonna shrink those net margins fairly quickly. And we're seeing a lot of that evidence in the pipeline now. So a lot of that big growth in net margin was due to reverse, uh, you know, a, a, a much reduced labor force because of what happened uh, with the economic shutdown of the pandemic. That be, and that also kind of led to a lot of companies becoming a lot more productive about sending people to work from home, those type of things. So reducing costs there, that led to a big expansion of net margins. Now, as everybody comes back to work and those costs are going to start to go back up, Though, and, and of course, the price of inputs, uh, whether it's commodities or input costs, labor costs, et cetera, those net margins are going to shrink pretty quickly. So that's going to really put some downward pressure on earning, earnings estimates later this year. So while analysts are very optimistic right now about earnings estimates, expect that those estimates are going to start to reverse and start to come back down in the second and third, uh, sorry, in the third and fourth quarters of this year. So again, just kind of really taking a look at it. the opportunity, though, again, yesterday, the market really struggled, like I said, because of Janet Yellen's comments um, primarily. And even though she re reversed that comment, again, it's not really outside that realm of possibility. And we've talked about the fact that federal officials tend to kind of float trial balloons from time to time to kind of set up the stage for, hey, we're thinking about doing this. And now we've had two people come out, um, now Janet Yellen, a Fed speaker as well, coming out talking about, hey, we might have to raise rates here fairly soon because of what's happening with inflationary pressures. Inflation is about to spike sharply here in the next couple of months because of the year-over-year -year base effects for one thing, but also 
much higher input costs from every everywhere, from food prices to input prices to supply chain problems, et cetera, all leading to big, big increases in prices. That's going to show up. That That is going to show up in inflationary pressures across the board, specifically in the next couple of months. But again, as we kind of look at these other markets as well, again, the selling was not just contained to the S&P yesterday. NASDAQ coming down, retesting the 50-day moving average, bounced off of that yesterday. Still pretty much well with, uh, contained within in this consolidation as well. Money flow sell signal really much more advanced here than the S&P. Um, so when this actually bottoms for the NASDAQ, that's probably going to be a better opportunity to put some money to work uh, in some of the major uh, NASDAQ names. Um, also, take a look at the dollar. Dollar's been strengthening here over the last couple of days. We had a little weak spat in the dollar here, but that's starting to bottom and turn back up. And then also, of course, when we take a look at gold, that's been one of the interesting ideas. Inflation's coming, should own gold. Gold has been slowly in an uptrend here. Hasn't really caught on yet, but I think gold's going to have its opportunity sooner rather than later. Quick break. We're going to come back, pick up with Danny Ratliff right here on the Real Investment Show. Lots of stuff to get into today from the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. Warren Buffett, what did he say? What did he tell investors this time around? Be right back. Investment show didn't get enough last lunch and learn we're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual lunch and learn with medicare on the menu thursday may 6th at noon we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of medicare parts a b and d understanding sign-up periods benefits and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties it's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on medicare thursday may 6th register now at realinvestmentadvice.com no masks required. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining him this morning. Danny, how are you, sir? Doing great. How are you, Lance? Well, it's Wednesday. It is Wednesday. We're, we're getting we're, we're getting through the week. So, so where do you start feeling better about the week? Like, is it Wednesday at noon, or is it when you wake up Wednesday morning? Like, all right, we're no. I, I think it's I think it's Wednesday after the show is over because I know I just got one more left for the week. <laughs> oh, yeah. so. That is true. I guess because in that, in that case, case I'm just getting started. It's my Monday then. It's your Monday because, of, of course, you you and uh, Richard handle you know do the, do your show on Friday. So, yeah, fun stuff. Exactly. So, uh, very interesting. Uh, President Biden talking about here just recently. You know, he's set a new target now for vaccinations. He wants 70 percent of Americans to be vaccinated by july the 4th right so we can celebrate independence day and it's a very interesting story because there's a very interesting chart out this morning uh surveys of people that um have gotten their vaccination the survey of people say have you gotten vaccinated yet are you thinking about getting vaccinated are you going to do it the number of people that have gotten vaccinated obviously have risen as of late right we've had a, a big chunk of people that go out and have gone out and gotten vaccinated about 40 percent of the population ish give or take 
have gotten their vaccination, either one or two shots. Um, the number of people saying, yes, they're going to get vaccinated has fallen sharply at this point, and primarily in the ages of 25 to, to 45, right around that, that kind of that Gen Z millennial bracket, right? They're, the number of, of people saying they're going to get vaccinated has fallen off sharply. The number of people saying, no, they won't get vaccinated hasn't changed. <laughs> it hasn't changed in months. That number of people, I, I said no back then, I'm telling you no now. So that hasn't changed at all. And it's just, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy now because as people are starting to go back to work, companies are mulling over the idea of you know, requiring vaccinations. And this is something that even, you know, uh, we've talked about here with, with, you know, with our business. Uh, under a new executive order, this was issued out on April the 6th. Under a new executive order issued by Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, government agencies, private businesses, and institutions that receive state funding cannot require people to show proof they've been vaccinated to go back to work. Um, this is also leading to new lawsuits that are potentially being filed. There was a and this is kind of a preview of potential challenges, you know, for businesses that are having to make this decision. Um, there's a lawsuit being filed. He, it's, um, the gentleman's name is Isaac Legerta. Apologies if I mispronounced that. Um, he works as a corrections officer in uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico. He was fired um, from his job for not getting vaccinated. The uh, institution had deemed it necessary to require the institution. He has now filed the lawsuit. The lawsuit has three interesting premises, though. And that's why I'm bringing it up, because this is going to be a, a potential issue going forward. Um, the lawsuit raises statutory and constitutional issues regarding companies, private companies in particular, and even state companies, requiring employees to get vaccinated. The first is, is that it's an unapproved product. Um, the claim is, of course, that the vaccine mandate communicated to him directly violates 21 U.S.C. code, which governs the emergency authorization of unapproved medical products. And unapproved products includes those that are authorized for emergency use but not yet approved through a standard approval process, which requires you know, a good bit of testing to understand what the side effects are, what the long-term effects are, those type of things. If you, again, if you kind of watch any, <laughs> any of the, the, of the drug commercials on television, right? It's like, here, take this drug for your depression. And the side effect is, is everything that would make you even more depressed probably <laughs> for, from that. But hey, you, you may be one of the lucky ones that aren't depressed if you take this drug. Um, we didn't go through that, right? So we just issued this drug out very quickly with no testing of what the long-term side effects or, or potential issues are going to be. So requiring people to take something like this violates potentially that code. The other is, is a retaliatory discharge. Basically, he was fired for not complying with what the corporation said or his employer said at this point. So again, that falls under the retaliatory. But he also filed a very interesting part of this, which is called due process rights. Because he was fired for not complying with the demand by the company to go get vaccinated, he was, he was not afforded his due process under the law. So this is going to be so this is this is this is one of the initial cases that's coming up that's going to challenge this whole idea of whether or not companies can actually require you to go get vaccinated. And of course, the, the other question comes up is if you're already vaccinated, why do you care? But, you know, this is going to be one of those, I think, one of the issues that are going to come up, particularly as we try to reopen the economy. And as everybody tries to go back to work, um, there is a large chunk of the population that has either said, no, I'm not going to get it, or 
I'm not really thinking about getting it. <laughs> so there's a, there's a large chunk of that population. So it's going to be interesting to coming up, uh, as I said, just from a, a legal and statutory standpoint um, and how this case gets resolved, I think it's going to set precedent for how companies approach uh, the issue of vaccination and return to work policies. Yeah, it's interesting to see that, that there is a big different, there's a very large dynamic between people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. Just mm-hmm. we talk to people daily, they want to visit or they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, as it seems to be, that are vaccinated are a little bit more cautious than those that are not. Right. And that may be the case just because you, you want to take the extra precautions. But if this works the way it, they claim it works, mm-hmm. you should be fine, right? Right. So, well, I mean, th- theoretically, if you're vaccinated, you can't get the, the, the you know, COVID. So why, do you, why are you concerned about people that aren't vaccinated, right? That's kind of the, that's kind of the question. But, but again, we'll, we'll see how this kind of works out. So um, I think it's going to be interesting to watch this case. So, uh, you know, I've been waiting for, you know, the cases to start to show up. Because, again, you can't sue. The, if, if, some, if you have a side effect, like a blood clot that causes a death, which is we've seen that happen already. Um, if you have some other side effect that, you know, comes off this, you can't sue the drug manufacturers because of the emergency use authorization. It, there is a, a part of that emergency use that also disallows you from any legal recourse against the drug manufacturer because of the use uh, because of the emergency use of this drug. There are some cases though that are potentially kind of cropping up now in Europe against the drug manufacturers. And so this will be something to kind of watch as well to see if they can get around this idea of emergency use authorization and the inability to sue drug manufacturers. So this is over the next year or so, we're gonna see some very interesting cases to kind of watch um, and just kind of pay attention to. But I think that's in general. I don't think you yeah. can actually go after these drug companies. I think they're they're actually under a veil they are. on any of these vaccines. They are, absolutely. Yeah, you can't, like, again, if you take the vaccine, have a, a very serious reaction and pass away from it, you cannot, your family cannot sue the drug yeah. company for compensation. Which is why they have the vaccine injury compensation programs, right? So on and so forth. People signing non-disclosures. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. See, you, you got it. You got it. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. I did a little uh, homework. Exactly. So let's uh, let's switch gears here a little bit. Um, so one of the things that we've been talking about here over the last couple of weeks, particularly, is you know the impact of higher inflation, higher cost, um, you know, kind of speculative attitudes and markets. I mean, we've kind of covered the whole gamut here. Uh, just recently in particular. And, and we, you know, one of the things that, you know, is, is always of interest is when Warren Buffett has their annual shareholder meeting and, you know, everybody kind of is glued to what his, his, you know, words of wisdom are. And we kind of touched on this earlier on Monday that we've now moved back into a cycle. In 1999, um, Warren Buffett was talking about technology companies, and dot-com companies in particular. And he's like, hey, we don't invest in those companies. We don't, we don't look at them. We don't invest in them. Um, if they don't have earnings and they don't have a real viable product, et cetera, then we don't buy them because we operate under this premise that we're making long-term investments into companies that can grow earnings and grow wealth and those type of things. And of course, the media and a lot of young investors at that time, and you know, those young investors now are old investors, but <laughs> at that time, they were very young investors in 1999. And they were like, oh, Warren Buffett is like driving dead's old Pontiac, right? He just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the value of the internet. And he doesn't understand what this means for the future. Of course, 
Um, in just a couple of quick short years, Warren Buffett was proved very correct as Buffett vastly. And again, back in 1998, 1999, Warren Buffett was underperforming the S&P 500 because of the dot-com stocks, because of technology, et cetera. In 2001 and two and three and four, Berkshire Hathaway massively outperformed the technology index because of the collapse in all those companies that had no earnings and no value. So here we are again, fast forward, Warren Buffett's giving out his presentation and people are once again saying, well, you know, Warren Buffett's been underperforming the S&P for the last couple of years. He just doesn't really get it. It's kind of too old now, right? It doesn't get he doesn't get what's going on. He doesn't understand Bitcoin. Of course, Charlie Munger made a couple of comments about Bitcoin and that just sent <laughs> the millennial generation off the cliff um, at that point. So again, just old boomer guy doesn't get it. I, I caution you <laughs> from the standpoint that, you know, while this may this time may seem to be different, you know, there is a fundamental basis of how markets work over time. And yes, markets can become very detached from things and, and fundamental basises at points in history because of artificial interventions, quantitative easing, et cetera. And that's what's been going on here. But eventually fundamentals matter and they always matter and they always matter a lot and they always matter at the worst possible time uh, for investors. You know what I found the most interesting about what they said this last week was, you know, Think about what Berkshire Hathaway is. They're a holding company. They go out and buy other companies. They bet. They make big bets. Right. Now, they also have a ton of money in cash. I think like $148 billion in cash. Maybe more than that, actually. I'm, so, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what exactly those, those recent numbers are, but I know it's huge. But he is saying that you should go out and just invest in the S&P 500 index, which for a guy who's made his wealth, his living on investing in specific companies, he's telling 90, you know, most people to go out. In fact, his estate, he says, 90% of the money will go on the S&P 500, then 10% into treasuries for his wife after he dies. Let's talk about why he says that. And because there's, it's not as, it's not as simple as it sounds okay. on the surface. So when we come back from the break, we'll talk about why he's telling the average investor that that's what you should do. That doesn't mean that's what Warren Buffett does. He's telling you that's what you should do. Oh, that's do. what he's saying he's doing. No, that's what he's telling you his estate will do. And we'll talk about why when we come back from the break. Don't go away. People say in any place, anytime at realinvestmentadvice.com. Didn't get enough last lunch and learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual lunch and learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our lunch and learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Yes. And welcome 
Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Meryl Sanchez Roberts. 6.33 as we kind of get this uh, show underway. So just for the break, talking a little bit about Warren Buffett and, uh, you know, at their recent meeting. And he's talking about how young investors should invest and saying just buy the S&P index. Now, why did he tell people that? So a couple of things that people always confuse, uh, you know, always get this email. Um, at least once a month, I get this email that says, you know, we'll talk about, you know, our money flow index, etc. you know, um, you know, about four weeks ago now, our money flow index triggered a sell signal. And so we reduced exposure to our portfolio. We just took a little bit of profits off, reduced. We had some index trading positions. We took those off, took those profits in, reduced, you know, raised cash here a little bit just to potentially hedge against uh, a pickup in volatility in the markets. And that's what's been going on here for the last couple of weeks. And, and invariably, whenever Danny or I talk about this, I always get an email that says, well, you know, Warren Buffett doesn't pay attention to your charts. And yeah, Warren Buffett doesn't care about the stock market. You know, there's a vast difference between how Warren Buffett invests and how you invest. And let me go through a couple of those differences. First of all, Warren Buffett doesn't buy a stock so to speak, right? He buys whole companies. So pretty much when he makes the purchase of a company, he goes into the board of directors office, looks at the you know, the guy at the head of the table and says, excuse me, you're in my seat. Um, when you buy large chunks of companies, you have a say in how that business operates. When you go buy your shares of Amazon, Amazon doesn't even know who you are, right? Much less do you have a voice of any consequence. Can can you can you vote for shareholder meetings at Amazon? Absolutely. I, I can make an argument. I see him like once a day looking out the window. I know. <laughs> he Hang shows on. up. He shows up every day on my porch. Yeah. <laughs> so they know me. Um, I'll tell you a story in a minute. <laughs> I, my wife was traveling, and I texted her a picture because there were about nine boxes on our front porch. And I texted her a picture, and I go, we seriously have to talk about your Amazon habits. <laughs> <laughs> Just caught me on a bad the, day, honey. The, I'm the, sorry. The UPS guy was like, you know, you know, taking aspirin out in the front yard from hauling all the boxes up to the house, right? <laughs> She says, I don't have a problem. They were backlogged. I know, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, he buys he buys companies. He makes long-term strategic bets in companies. Now, this is also another big factor. This is the other very important factor about the differential between how you invest and how Warren Buffett invests. When Warren Buffett makes an investment, his time horizon is infinite, the reason his time horizon is infinite is because he is buying that investment inside of a company. Berkshire Hathaway will be here for as long as that company chooses to operate until it's, you know, until it eventually is sold off, broken up, whatever happens to it, bought by somebody else, whatever happens down the road. But that could be decades from now. Um, they've already announced that Greg Abel will take over for Warren Buffett once Warren Buffett decides to step down, which they've made that announcement, which means that probably Warren Buffett will be stepping down probably within the next few years. Um, you don't have that kind of time horizon. Your time horizon is if you invest money today and you are 10 years from retirement, five years from retirement, eight years from retirement, whatever it is, that's your time horizon until you need your money. So you're, the duration and the risk of your portfolio and your investments need to match your time horizon, not Warren Buffett's. Because Warren Buffett has no intention, when he buys a company, he has no intention to sell it ever. 
And he's also 90 years old and still working. Exactly. Which many of you don't want to do that. Exactly. So why is he telling you to buy the S&P? The reason he's telling you to buy the S&P is that the average person is a terrible stock picker. The average person cannot outperform the the stock market over the duration of their time span. And and look, we have tons of research data that show that the average investor underperforms indexes. And there's a vast, there's a, a huge number of reasons why psychology issues, behavioral issues, but more importantly, your portfolio works very differently than an index. An index has no cash. It has no pays no taxes. It has no fees. It has no other consequences to it. If a company goes bankrupt in an index, as an example, let's talk about the Dow Jones as just a quick, you know, 30 companies, price weighted within the index. GM went bankrupt back in 2008. Uh, the index basically takes GM out, which has now fallen 70, 80% in value. They simply take that, that stock out and then put a new one in, and the index rebalances itself. For you, if you were matching the index, buying the exact same 30 stocks, GM lost 70% of its value. Well, now you only have that small amount of money that's left in your GM holding to buy a new holding to put back in. So the differential, what we call the substitution replacement issue, is a massive difference between what happens with your portfolio versus what happens with an index. Losing money in your portfolio has real con- uh, real consequences, an index does not. But for the average person, the reason he says, hey, buy the S&P index, is that you will, over time, perform with the index, and provided that you don't happen to get caught in a period where you have a 20-year period of no returns, which has happened multiple times throughout history. So as long as you're investing at the right time in the index, you're going to do okay. If you invest in the wrong time in the index, you're not going to do well. You'll make near zero rates of return, as we will probably experience over the next decade or so, but you will perform in line with the index, right? So that's why he's saying, basically Warren Buffett is saying, you can't outperform the index just by the index, right? That's that He's not making a bet that that's going to be a wise investment for you. And he's not making he's not making the assumption that you're going to outperform that index. He's saying that that basically you're not going to be able to do better than the index. You might as well just buy the index and just hold on to it because that's the best that you're probably going to be able to do. The consequences are probably worse. Yeah, you made a couple of good points there. You know, one of the things when he's buying these companies, he's also getting favorable um, you know, action on it in the sense that he may say, hey, you're going to pay me X amount on for for interest or for a dividend mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. He may go buy it as a go buy bonds. He does so many different things that we can't do. We don't right. have access to that type of capital, nor can you walk in and say, hey, by the way, you're in my seat. <laughs> um, the other aspect, you know, you tweeted out an article this week. It was mm-hmm. in the Wall Street Journal right. talking about people who are actually out there saying they're acting as they are financial advisors on TikTok right. on all these social media sites, and they're 20 years old. They have no experience whatsoever, but they've created this big following. Right. And some of these people even gone as far as to say, well, go inside these, you know, some of the top or the best funds mm-hmm. and go pick their top 10 holdings. Right. Which that can get you in trouble as well for the same reason you just mentioned. Right. Because if something falls out and you're still in, and the problem is when you're looking at, at what those top holdings are, you're looking at a, at a snapshot mm-hmm. from the past. Right. 
not what's actually going on now or in the future. Right. And that can be a big problem as markets are changing very quickly. Well, and, and, and it's a very, it's a that's a very important statement, right? Um, but then the, the you know the the consequence of people now again you know this younger uh, this younger generation, right? They like everything in very condensed forms, and this is why they like TikTok, right? I can get all the information I need in a minute or less, mm-hmm. right? I watch a video, some guy tells me that I need to go and buy this stock or that stock. Sounds great. And look, it's all working right now. It doesn't really matter what you buy. It, it, it's, it's going up. We will get into a phase where none of that works. Now, when is that going to occur? Who knows? It'll occur when we start tightening interest rates. We'll start, it'll occur when that we start having less liquidity in the market from treasury cash balances, which, by the way, is coming. Um, you know, that's when things are going to stop working as well as they did. And again, that's just part of the overall you know, cycle eventually. And, and again, we saw these same issues back in 99. We saw it back in 2007, people quitting their jobs to go be real estate people. You know, we see the same type of, of occurrences occur. Everybody always believes it's different. Then the market changes. Um, the value of investing long-term is understanding the risk that you're taking, right? And understanding capital preservation. But most importantly, you the one thing that people never talk about is your duration. And there is a massive difference. Look, if you're 20 years old, go buy the S&P index, plow everything you've got into it, and just leave it alone. Because in 30 years, you're going to go through a couple of market cycles and you're going to make money, right? You will be okay in 30 or 40 years. By the time you get to retirement, that index will have grown substantially. And you can go through a 20-year bear market period and still be okay. If you're 10 years for retirement and you're investing in an index with valuations at the second highest level on record, your returns over the next 10 years are all but almost guaranteed to be substantially lower. It doesn't mean that that's going to happen every year. We just wrote an article about this, about what that means. But all it means is that you're going to have one or two really bad years somewhere over the next decade for one for whatever reason that's going to lower your rate of return to near zero over the next 10 years. So, you know, that is is the issue you've got to, to understand and deal with. And this is why we talk about understanding how to manage risk and, and managing portfolio risk, protecting downside capital you know, draws, those type of things, because that's what allows you to compound returns over time. If you lose money, you destroy the effect of compounding. You don't compound if you lose money, because then you've got to not only make up the the money you lost, but you also have to make up the money you didn't make that you were supposed to make from the compounding effect. So it's, it's and this is the reason why pension funds are always perennially underfunded, because they have these 7% benchmark rates of return that they can achieve. So the next year, they've got to make up that 7% or that underperformance that they didn't get, plus the 7% they didn't get the year before, and it continues to compound, which is why they remain perennially underfunded over time. And then, heaven forbid, you actually have a crash along the way (laughs) that really messes things up. So that's what Warren Buffett's really talking about. It's not that he doesn't get it. It's just that he understands after about 70 years in the market that things don't always operate the way things seem to be in the very short term. Be right back after the break. Look at you, now look at me. Look at you, now look at me. 
You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Didn't get enough last Lunch and Learn? We're serving up a second helping at our next free virtual Lunch and Learn with Medicare on the menu. Thursday, May 6th at noon, we'll sink our teeth into the alphabet soup of Medicare, parts A, B, and D. Understanding sign-up periods, benefits, and how to avoid costly permanent late enrollment penalties. It's a second helping edition of our Lunch and Learn on Medicare, Thursday, May 6th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. No masks required. The Real Investment Show. This is a public service announcement brought to you by The Real Investment Show in conjunction with Black Rifle Coffee Company. Things you won't hear Texans say. Now, that AOC, he's got some good points. Best Texas documentary on three. One, two, three. Brokeback Mountain! <laughs> these Wranglers make my ass look fat. Now, boy, you feel my real nice. Thank you. Forgot my vape pen. Things you won't hear Texans say. We now return you to our regular program. And welcome back to the Wednesday edition of the Real Investor Show. Daniel Ratliff joining us this morning. Morning, sir. Morning. (laughs) I got nothing. Not after that. You got nothing? Um, So, inflation. Right. Oh, by the way, we have a uh, a is it a lunch and learn? We do have a lunch and learn tomorrow on Medicare. So all the things that you need to know will be discussed tomorrow at 12 o'clock Central Standard Time. Love for you guys to go sign up. Go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Lots of big mistakes are made when filing for Medicare. There are three different enrollment periods. There is a permanent penalty if you do not enroll at the proper time. So we're going to help you navigate that. Understand it. Hopefully, you walk out of there uh, or out of your web room feeling much more confident and uh, better about what you need to do and how you need to do it. So, Medicare is a big part of the overall financial plan because we do we can incur those permanent penalties. We can make mistakes that can impact us for long periods of time, and so we want to make sure that you don't do that. So, go sign up realinvestmentadvice.com. All right. And again, if you go to the website, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com, uh, right, there's the banner right there on the homepage that you just click the banner and you can just go right into the event sign up and get you taken care of. So if you have any questions or uh, comments or need help with anything, just click the ask a question button and we'll make sure and get you in the right place and where you need to go, get you taken care of. So, um, so talking about inflation here a little bit, you know, the, you know, the issue is, you know, is there inflation in the system? And, and, you know, at the same time that we're, you know, providing individuals lots of income, right? So we're giving them $1,400 checks, we're giving them expanded unemployment benefits, that's all fine and dandy. Except for the fact that that artificial stimulus has led to an artificial bump in demand, right? Uh, and what I mean by an artificial bump in demand is that, yes, no, it's, it's real demand, but it's artificial from the standpoint that the stimulus is temporary, so once the money's spent, that demand goes away unless you provide more stimulus. This is why there's been three rounds of checks, right? We did a $1,400 check, a $900 check, and then back to a fourteen or $600 check, and then a $1,400 check. So we've given these successive rounds of stimulus to try to inflate artificial demand. And if you take a look at um, personal incomes, there's a huge spike in personal incomes. Well, the only reason there's a huge spike in personal incomes is because real incomes, the actual income people make from working, is not rising. 
So if my baseline effect of my income is unchanged and then I slap $1,400 on top of it, all of a sudden my income's jumped sharply. If incomes were actually rising, the jump from the, from the stimulus would not be nearly as large, right? So just, you've got to kind of put these things into context. And so if there's artificial demand, then what are companies going to do, right? They're going to raise prices. And we're seeing that already in really two forms. One, we are seeing prices go up. Uh, guess what? If you're going to go travel for Memorial Day coming up, the average ga uh, gallon of gasoline price is now $2.90, um, according to a read this morning. So nearly $3 a gallon, depending on where you live, right? I mean, some states are higher, some states are lower. Going to California, it's like, you know, uh, $400 and your left arm, something like that for a gallon of gas. Um, you know, in Texas, it's much, much, much slower. Um, but the, the point here is that the gas is getting more expensive. It's not because there's a shortage of gasoline. It's because now there was no demand for gasoline because people are all working at home. Now they're going back to work, so there's demand. And guess what? When there's demand, prices go up. Doesn't mean the cost of gasoline is more expensive. It is because the oil prices have gone up. But demand, supply leads to rising prices. The other way to do that is to give you what's called shrinkflation. What is shrinkflation? It is shrinkflation. It is what George Costanza said when he jumped into the ice cold pool. It's shrinkage, Jerry. It's shrinkage. <laughs> no, shrinkflation. Shrinkflation is that, for example, Procter & Gamble uh, just recently issued out that uh, basically if you go buy paper towels, um, if you bought paper towels, say, six months ago and go buy paper towels today, what you're going to probably find is, is you'll pay the same price for the paper towels, but you're going to get about 20 sheets less. Um, Danny was talking about his potato chip habit, that he's getting a lot less potato chips in his uh, bag of potato chips because of this. But it's not just Procter Gamble. It's not just potato chip companies. Um, we're seeing Fastenal as an example. We, th these are comments from companies, right? Fastenal. Uh, we're experiencing significant material cost inflation, particularly for steel, fuel, and transportation costs. Um, General Mills. Looking ahead, we're experiencing higher inflationary environment. Our first line of defense will continue to be our strong holistic margin management cost savings program. Now, listen to that very carefully. Our first line of defense is a strong holistic margin management cost savings program. What does that mean? That means I manage my internal cost and I'm passing on the external cost. And how do I manage my internal cost? Automation, wage suppression, employment suppression, those type of things, right? I got to manage that internal cost. What's the biggest cost for any business? Employment, right? That's that's a big issue. Uh, Conagra Foods, we're seeing input cost inflation rising sharply, lows where the pandemic-related effects are supply chains are the primary drivers of our cost increases. Um, PPG, utility company. Uh, we're experiencing significant acceleration of raw material and logistics costs. Uh, Dover Industries, we're going to fight against between now and the end of the year is inflationary input costs between raw materials, labor, and price cost. The way it's looking, we have to intervene on price again in certain areas of our business and balance those against the rest of the year. Again, this, this is the list of companies that have all announced inflationary pressures is immense and it goes across all industries of the financial markets and this all results back into two things one they're always going to protect their bottom line they've got to protect their profits which rising inflationary costs 
only come in two forms. They either get passed on to consumers directly in terms of higher prices, or they get managed internally through cost suppression, automation, productivity increases, and lower employment. That's, that's, that's how it gets managed one way or the other. But it's all going to be about protecting profit margins in the end. So if, in, if inflationary costs are getting passed through, that stimulus is has less base effect within the economy. In other words, you get less out of each dollar spent within the economy. And then once the stimulus goes away, wages haven't risen, which means now you've got higher prices on, on stagnant wages, which means discretionary incomes for individuals and households falls, which lowers economic demand later this year. Well, the key is gonna be is that this has all gone up, a majority of it because of stimulus. Right. So now if you take stimulus away, if you look at last month, you had personal income increased by 21.1%. That is almost double what we saw in last April when we received the first stimulus checks, which was like 10.6% increase. That's a substantial difference. And I think that that's going to, to wane over time. Mm -hmm. And what's going to be the overall impact then when we do have those higher prices, we're not going to continue to have those stimulus checks at some point. Right. And you have an economy that's you know trying to, to sift through what the tax increases are going to really what the impact is another cost increase another cost increase right so what does that look like for wage growth that that you can basically kiss that goodbye right well then that this is the problem is that you know look, tax rates are confiscatory right um and you lay that on top of in, inflationary input cost right the, i mean none of that bodes well for corporate earnings and corporate profits through the end of this year and into next year so a lot of the expectations for massive surges in economic growth, massive surges in earnings growth is likely, there's a very, very real possibility that's gonna be um, much discounted by the end of the year. And then the problem with inflationary pressures is that is going to start to box in the Fed and the Treasury into exactly how much they can do and how much ability they have to support markets going forward. And now that we've run past the budgetary process further spending bills are going to have to go through the normal process of government, which is going to require a 60-vote margin in order to get passed, which is going to include Republicans, which means things like infrastructure, et cetera, are going to have to get scaled back. So a lot of what was expected to help boost markets is going to be pared back. A lot of the cash treasury balances are being rapidly drained off. And in fact, the treasury is about to hit the debt ceiling limit here in the next couple of months. And so we're going to be back to that debt ceiling fight to try to issue more debt. Um, that's going to result in another continuing resolution uh, for the next budget year. That's the, that's where most likely we're going to see some of the um, infrastructure packages get built into will be when we start to, to do the continuing resolution, which can run under the budgetary process for 2021 to 2022. The problem there is, is a lot of these Democrats that have to go back to their states, which, again, we talked about yesterday. A lot of these Democratic states are not super left. There, there's a lot of Democratic states that kind of border on the margin of being kind of moderate Democrat states. When those Democrats, like Joe Manchin's example, have to go back to their state and explain the debts and the deficits and explain why they need to vote for him again, the the issue of that 2022 re-election uh, coming up is going to be a real challenge for some Democrats to, to go across. So they're going to have to become a little bit more conscientious potentially about spending 
and what kind of bills they're voting on before that midterm election cycle comes up. Because uh, there's a real chance because of the redistricting. Oh, man, I'm having trouble this morning. Redistricting uh, because of the recent census poll that has now given Republicans a few more seats. Um, that's going to really kind of change the dynamic for the 2022 midterms anyway. So this is going to become much more challenging as we go forward. So inflation, taxes, those are really the things you want to watch for in terms of the impact to the environment, uh, economic environment, as well as the market environment. So there you go. Danny? You said it all. Lunch to learn. Lunch to learn. Medicare, go sign up. It's going to be tomorrow at 12 noon. We look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, go get your Zoom link right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, we're going to be talking about all and everything you need to know about Medicare uh, in a quick 30, 45-minute format. There you go. All right. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow. Get by the website. Michael Leibowitz's new article is out on the website this morning as well. It's all there for you. And, of course, we'll see you tomorrow in the next edition of The Real Investment Show right here, realinvestmentadvice.com. Always Sunday in the rich man's world. While the big time Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.